Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, The Just Shall Live by Faith. Amen. All right, well, Romans. Romans is Paul's most famous work. And if you've read it, you know that it is an absolute theological masterpiece. The genius of Romans is that it ministers both to our mind and our heart. It speaks to both our intellect and our spirit. So intellectually, here's what Romans does. Romans lays out the truths of Christianity in a very clear and systematic way. And then not only does it minister to our mind in that way, but also to our hearts, to our spirit. Because in Romans, Romans contains the gospel of God, that life-changing message of God reaching down to man in order to save mankind through Christ. Romans contains the gospel, which is the power of God to salvation for, listen to this, everyone who believes. It's, it has the gospel. Okay, what does the word gospel mean? If you're brand new to the Bible, the word gospel means good news. And so Romans, as you're going to find out all year long, is filled with good news. It's not filled with the bad news. Okay, so what I mean by that is this. Romans is not filled with the bad news of man trying to reach up to God. Okay, that's not the message of this book. That's the message of religion. So Romans is not the bad news of man trying to reach up to God. No, rather, this is what it's all about. If you're taking notes, Paul's letter to the Romans is about the good news of God reaching down to man. Big difference. When my three daughters were little, we used to love to go to the park a lot. Most of the years, my daughters... um, um, when, when, when they were small growing up, um, most of those years they were homeschooled. And so we got to have a family day once a week. And so we got to spend the whole day together. And often I would take them to the park and we would play Simon Says and, and we would swing and do all those things that you guys do with your kids. And then we would go to the chin-up bar. And we would go to the chin-up bar in order to do pull-ups. But there was a problem, right? My daughters were so small and the chin-up bar was so high that they couldn't reach the chin-up bar. Now, here's what I never did as the dad. As my little girls are jumping, saying, Daddy, I just can't reach it. I can't reach it. I never kind of stood to the side and said, What's wrong with you? You know, Try harder. Get with it. I never laughed at them, right? I never did that. What did I do? It's the same thing that you dads do, right? I grabbed my little girl and I, got to get this, I lifted her up to a place she couldn't reach on her own. And then I helped her. Okay, you got it, you got it, honey? All right, ready? One, two, three. Are your arms hurting? Because mine are killing me. I'm doing all this work here. Four, right? And that's exactly what God does for us. The gospel is not the bad news of man trying to reach up to God. I've got to save my own soul. I've got to be more devout. I've got to be more religious. If I just did more good deeds, I wonder if God's mad at me. No, that's the bad news of religion. No, the good news of God is that God in his grace reaches down to man and he lifts us up to a place 
we could never reach on our own. God takes us. We're saved by grace, right? He lifts us up. Nothing to do with us. We can't reach it. This is why salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You'll never do it on your own. And so we're saved by grace. He takes us to that place we could never reach on our own. And then we live. The just shall live by faith. And so, one, two, it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So it's from faith to faith. It's from faith, as we're going to see in verse 17, from start to finish. Now, Paul wrote this letter in A.D. 57. He wrote it from Corinth. You remember we just went through last year the entire book of Paul to the Corinthians. And so in A.D. 57, Paul's in Corinth. He's ministering. He's planting that church with Aquila and Priscilla. And as he's tied up in that work, God puts the believers over in Rome on his heart. And so he decides, man, I've got to write these people. And by the way, he knew a lot of them. Paul had never been to Rome in A.D. 57. He hadn't been there yet. Okay, but he knew a lot of people who were in that church. In fact, in chapter 16, I believe the number, I'll check later, uh, he, he names 26 people by name in, verse, in chapter 16. So he knew a lot of the believers, even though he had never been there. God puts the believers in Rome on his heart, and so he sits down and dictates this theological masterpiece that you have opened on your laps. At that time, Rome had, the capital of the Roman Empire, one million inhabitants. Okay, so over one million people who desperately needed to hear the message of God's grace reaching down to man. And as I was thinking about, you know, how do I start Romans? I thought about all the people in the past who've been impacted by this letter. You see, the letter of Romans from Paul to that church in the first century, it didn't just impact those believers in that day in the capital of the Roman Empire. No, this letter has impacted millions of people for 2,000 years, including the people that we would call the heroes of the faith. Let me give you some examples. Um, uh, for example, John Chrysostom. John Chrysostom was the archbishop of Constantinople during the 14th, uh, the 4th century. Okay, so what this guy would do, what this archbishop would do, is that while he, during the week, busied himself doing various tasks, he would have somebody following him around reading the book of Romans out loud to him. He would have the entire book of Romans read out loud to him twice a week, and it impacted his life. St. Augustine was profoundly impacted by Romans. Martin Luther, of course, profoundly impacted by Romans. George Whitfield. Remember the first great awakening, profoundly impacted by the message of Romans, as was a man named John Wesley. Now, I've been reading John Wesley's biography of late. It's very uh, soul-stirring, but Wesley grew up in the 18th century, and he grew up in England, and he attended the Anglican church where his father uh, was a priest, an Anglican priest. And so when he grew up, he went to college in Oxford, that's where he was educated. And while he was in Oxford, by the way, this guy was a very um, a serious guy, very devout. So while he was getting educated at Oxford, um, he started, he helped start a, a club called the Holy Club. And so the Holy Club was made up of guys who really wanted to live a devout life 
um, religiously. And so it was led by John Wesley, his brother Charles Wesley, who wrote all the hymns and, in the hymn book, and, and also a guy named George Whitfield. Okay, so because of their strict, listen to this, methodical approach to religion, because of their strict methodical approach to religion, these men, Wesley, Whitfield, they were scornfully called the Methodists. And so as uh, Wesley continued uh, to, to age, after getting his education when he was around 25 years old, he decided to follow in his father's footsteps, and he also became an Anglican priest. In 1735, when he was 32 years old, he got on a boat and he came over here to the New World, to America. His hope, his dream was to convert the Indians. And so while he was en route to the New World, an incredible storm came and hit the ship that John Wesley was on. And the storm was so bad, this guy literally feared for his life. In fact, there's actually people on the boat during the storm that are screaming out because everybody's afraid we're going to die. And then Wesley looks over to a corner of the boat, and he can't believe it because there's a group there, and instead of being freaked out in the storm, they're singing to God with confidence. And this, you know, Wesley's hanging on for dear life, and he can't believe. And it was a group of Moravian Christians. And so after the storm, he said, I got to talk to these people. And so he went to the pastor of the Moravian Christians that were singing to God during the storm to have a religious conversation. And during that conversation, the pastor challenged him on a number of things. But I want to share with you two pointed questions that the Moravian pastor asked a young John Wesley. He said, and I quote, do you know Jesus Christ? Now, that could be a pretty offensive question to an Anglican priest or a man who's been trained in ministry. Do you know? But here's why I admire the question. Because he's asking, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? You see, there's a difference between knowing Jesus and knowing about Jesus. The difference is about 16 inches it's the difference between heaven and hell, by the way. He said, do you know Jesus? And then question number two, straight from Romans 8, he said, does the Spirit of God witness with your spirit that you're a child of God? I love that. And I've been asking this question all day long in all three of our services, so I'll ask you guys too. Do you know Jesus in a personal way? Right? That's the first question. And the second question is, does the Spirit of God witness with your spirit, Romans 8, that you are a child of God. I didn't ask if you're religious. I didn't ask if you're devout. I didn't ask if you cross every religious T and dot every religious I. I didn't even ask if you know about God or know about Jesus. What I'm asking is, do you have a personal relationship with Christ? That's what this pastor asked Wesley. Here's Wesley's response, and I quote, I know Christ is the savior of the world. The pastor said, true but do you know that he has saved you? And those words haunted Wesley. They stuck with Wesley while he did his pastoral duties because once he got over to America, he wanted to convert the Indians, um, but he ended up being a pastor of the colonists 
who were in Savannah, Georgia. In fact, if you're ever in Savannah, walking around with your coffee downtown, you'll see a statue of John Wesley right there in downtown Savannah. And so he was there in Savannah, Georgia for two years, but for two years, his ministry produced very little results. You see, there was no life. There was no spiritual life. There was no spiritual power. There was a no, no, no anointing on this man. And afterwards, Wesley felt empty and he felt lost. And he wrote in his journal, and I quote, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? He was there for two years, finally gave up, and he went back to England. And while he was... Um, on his way back to England, he thought about his Moravian friends. And so when he got there, he looked them up, he established a friendship with these guys, and they invited him to a meeting. They said, hey, John, we're going to meet. We're going to have a little Bible study. It's on Aldersgate Street in London. He said, sure, I'll come. And so they, 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 they all got together. And I want you to picture this in your mind. There's John Wesley. Um, there's these uh, other Christians. And somebody pulls out. Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. And the guy just starts to read a commentary about the letter that you have opened up on your laps. And all of a sudden, something happened that absolutely changed John Wesley's life. It was May 24, 1738, and I'll let, you, uh, tell, I'll let him tell the story. He said, quote, about a quarter before nine. In other words, while this guy is reading the commentary on Romans, about a quarter before nine, I felt my heart strangely warmed. He said, I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone. Everybody say, Christ alone. That's where it's at. I felt I did trust Christ. Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Somebody's reading from a commentary on Romans, and all of a sudden, John Wesley's life is forever changed. He was trained in the ministry. He was an Anglican priest. He knew about Jesus in his head, but he didn't know Christ in his heart. When he finally came to the place where he stopped trusting in himself to save himself, and he started trusting in Christ alone to save him. That's when that man, I believe, was born again on Aldersgate Street in London in 1738. You see, before John Wesley's trying to jump up and trying to reach the standard that none of us can ever reach, I've been reading his biography, and this statement keeps coming up in the biography. He says, I quote, I sought to save my own soul. Ladies and gentlemen, that is false religion. I don't care if you're Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, Catholic, or Calvary Chapel. When someone says, I'm seeking to save my own soul, that person has shared that they are lost. You can't save your own soul. You can't jump high enough. God's standard is perfection. He'll never change his standard, but we can't reach that standard. And so it was on that day in 1738 that Wesley knew it's Christ and Christ alone, and God reached down and lifted him up to a place that he could never reach on his own. And everything changed in his heart. 
his heart was strangely warmed. On that day, a fire started in his heart, a fire that spread across England, Scotland, got over here to America, spread across America, and because of the influence of George Whitfield and John Wesley, Methodism took root in America, and by 1830, the Methodist Church was the largest denomination in America. It all started with the impact of the teaching of Romans. By the way, if John Wesley was alive today, he'd probably cry over what's happened to so many Methodist churches. Thank God there's many Methodists that still believe the Bible is God's word and they're still orthodox in their theology. But many Methodists, like many other mainline denominations, have gone to the left theologically. They've gone liberal theologically. So how sad is that? But Romans, Romans, when taken at face value, it's changed millions of lives. John Chrysostom, Augustine, Luther, Whitfield, Wesley, and listen, it can change your life. And so my encouragement to you is to make a commitment to stick with this study all year long. Throughout 2016, just stick with the study and ask God to start a fire in your heart like he did in John Wesley's heart. All right, you guys ready to dig in? Chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul, with pen in hand, I want you to underline the word bondservant. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an, and I want you to underline the word, apostle. So bondservant, apostle. He says, separated to the gospel of, what's the word there? That's important, not the bad news of man, but the gospel of God. And so in verse 1, Paul gives himself two titles. Very simple. We'll put it up on the screen. Paul's titles, bondservant, that's doulos in the Greek. That means a slave. <laughs> Paul the slave. And then he says, I'm an apostle. That means one sent forth with orders. And so first of all, let's tackle the bondservant, the slave. For Paul to say that tells me that this guy is authentically humble. And by the way, humble people are attractive people. Prideful people, I hope, um, kind of repel you. No one likes an egomaniac. But most people like humble people. And so that was Paul. Paul could have started his letter, Paul the scholar. And he would have been right. I mean, good grief, he was trained personally by Gamaliel, the, the, the famous rabbi. Not only that, Jesus Christ uh, personally trained Paul in the Arabian desert and commissioned him, which we're going to find out here in a moment, to, to preach this message of grace. And so when Paul wrote, Paul was writing the word of God. The Holy Spirit came upon him. But the book you have open before you, Romans, that's God's breathed out word. Some people think it's just the red letters are inspired. So Man, let's make a big deal about the red letters, but the black letters, no, 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 the whole thing. Genesis through Revelation is God's word. Okay, but Paul says, he didn't say Paul the scholar. He could have. He didn't say Paul the Roman citizen, right? That would have impressed his readers in the capital of the Roman Empire. He didn't say that. He could have said Paul the spiritual giant. <laughs> I mean, he was. 2 Corinthians 12 tells us that Paul was whisked up into heaven and saw things 
um, so incredible he couldn't even repeat them. He was a spiritual giant, but he didn't write that down. No, what, what did he write? He says, Paul, the slave. What does that tell you? That tells you that he's a humble guy. He's full of humility. And by the way, you got to be secure in order to be humble. Egomaniacs are insecure. That's why when you hurl an insult at an egomaniac, he comes at you with all that he's got with another insult. Because he's so insecure, he can't take the insult. But secure people who find their acceptance in God and they know that God loves them unconditionally and the Holy Spirit is filling them to overflow in their personal devotion time, man, they're so secure that they don't need to make a name for themselves. They don't need to um, uh, hurl insults back at people. And so Paul was, was this amazing, humble guy. He was Paul the slave. There was reportedly in the Roman Empire 60 million slaves in the first century. 60, can you imagine? 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And in that day, the, Ro- the slaves were looked down upon. So, so if you were a Roman citizen, and Paul was a Roman citizen, if you were a Roman citizen, you're up here, and the, the slaves are down here. Aristotle and Plato both said that the worst insult you could ever give anybody in that time was to call him a doulos. And yet that's the name Paul gives for himself. What does that tell us? That tells us that the God's grace so impacted Paul that all he wanted to do the rest of his life was serve God and serve people. He wasn't trying to make a name for himself. He wasn't trying to build a kingdom or whatever. No, I'm just going to serve the Lord behind the scenes. I'm just going to serve man behind the scenes. And then what, what did God do? Hey, look at that. Um, and he promoted Paul to the place where now he is so respected by billions of believers all across the world. He calls himself a servant, and he calls himself an apostle. One sent forth with orders. The apostle was an official envoy of the king. The apostle was one who was commissioned by Christ with this message of grace. Now, now here's so radically incredible about the first century is that the Roman Empire was religious. They had all their little trinket gods that they would bow down to. And then, of course, the Jews were very religious. But the problem with many Jews is they're, they're, they're trying to work their way to God by keeping the, the law of Moses. And Christ commissions Paul with this new, this new message of grace, radical grace of God reaching down to man. And so he says, Paul, the bondservant, Paul, the apostle, separated, end of verse 1, to the gospel of God, verse 2, which he, that's God, promised before, okay, everybody just look at me for a second. We're in AD 57, okay, so before is everything over here. It's called the Old Testament. Okay, so the gospel of God, which God promised before through his prophets in the, what's the next two words? The Holy Scriptures. So the good news that Messiah would come was proclaimed by the prophets in the Old Testament or in the Holy Scriptures. Okay, so that's now your next point if you're taking notes. Jesus fulfilled how many? (laughs) All the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah showing that he was the Messiah. 
All of them. There's so many of them. I just want to name for you this morning or this afternoon um, 16. If you're new to the Bible, these 16 prophecies are in the Old Testament. The prophet said, hey, Israel, Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he's going to deliver us from our enemies. It was the central theme of the Old Testament. Messiah is coming. Okay, and so they prophesied, what do you look for to know who's the Messiah? Okay, he'll be a, here's a prophecy, he'll descend from, from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus did. He'll be of the lineage of David. Jesus was. A forerunner will precede him. John the Baptist did. He'll be born in Bethlehem. Jesus was. He'll be born of a virgin. Jesus was. He'll have an incredible ministry in Galilee. Jesus did. He'll present himself 483 years after a command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. We saw that last week, Daniel 9. Jesus did. He'll make a triumphal entry on a donkey. Jesus did. He'll be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus was. He'll be spat upon and struck. They did that to him. They're going to pierce his hands and feet. That happened to him. They're going to gamble for his garments. That happened. None of his bones will be broken. None of them were. He'll be buried with the rich. He was. He's going to rise from the dead. He did. He's going to ascend to heaven. He did. Okay? All of that. Now, this is amazing to me. All of that was written before in the Old Testament. Now, I just gave you 16 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning who the Messiah would be, and they're all fulfilled in one person. On the count of three, I want you to shout out his name, right? One, two, three, go. Jesus. Now, do you know what the chances are? This is my favorite illustration, or one of my favorite illustrations right here. Do you know what the chances are of one guy fulfilling just eight of those prophecies? It's one chance in 10 to the 17th power. Okay, that's a big number. That's 10 with 17 zeros behind it. One chance in, you thought it was hard to win Powerball last week, okay? <laughs> the chance of one guy fulfilling just eight of those Old Testament prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. What does that look like? Imagine if you could fill up the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. The whole state of Texas, big state, right? And then imagine if you could take one silver dollar and put an, a Sharpie X on it. And then take that marked coin up in a plane and at some point drop it. You don't know where. And then imagine if you could blindfold a guy and tell that guy, I want you to walk all around Texas as long as you want, Dallas, El Paso, Austin, Waco, whatever. You're not going to know where you are anyway because you have a blindfold on, but walk around for days, months, years if you want, but at some point reach down and grab a coin. The chances of that blindfolded man grabbing the marked coin is one chance in 10 to the 17th power. Jesus didn't just fulfill eight prophecies. He didn't even fulfill 16 prophecies. Some scholars put the number in the hundreds. What does that mean? That means Jesus Christ is Lord, Messiah, 
son of God. That's what it means. It's, it's the law of probability. There's, there's, I mean, I'm telling you, there's no doubt. What does that mean? I say it all the time, and I, I offend so many people, but I don't care. That means Islam is a false religion. Muhammad is a false prophet. That means that Hinduism is a false religion. That means all the other religions and all the other cults are completely false. Why? Because they do not believe that Jesus of Nazareth was and is the eternal Son of God, the Christ of Israel. He either was or he wasn't. Ladies and gentlemen, all roads do not lead to heaven. Two plus two is always equals four. Now, if you go to math class tomorrow and you write two plus two equals seven, and your teacher says, correct, right? There's something wrong with that teacher. There's one way to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's the only way. And the reason I stress this so much is because we have so many visitors that come to Calvary who, who don't know the truth that Jesus is the only way. And I know I have to stand before God someday, and I have to give an account for my ministry. And so one day I'll be able to stand before the Lord with a clear conscience and say, Lord, I told them question is, what will you do with what you've been told? Look at verse 3. So the prophets prophesied about the Messiah, Jesus, in the Holy Scriptures. Verse 3, he says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of who? David. David. You may want to underline that. According to the flesh, that's important, the flesh, and declared to be the, underline, son of God. With power according to, not just the flesh, but now according to the spirit of holiness. The divine spirit, the, the, the nature of God that was inside of Christ. And he proved that he was the son of God, end of verse 4, by the resurrection from the dead. Okay, and so what does verses 3 and 4 mean? If you're taking notes, here's a summary. Jesus was born of the seed of David, that means he's 100% human. And he was declared to be the son of God. That means he was 100% God. Now, this is the Jesus of the Bible. There's lots of false Jesuses out there. Jesuses who can't save. Okay, so this is, I'm preaching the Jesus of the Holy Scriptures. He's 100% man. Um, every Jew knew that when Messiah comes, he'll come from the lineage of King David. It's the, 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 the Davidic covenant, we covered that last month, okay? And so you look at the genealogy in Matthew, you look at the genealogy in Luke, it's undisputed. Jesus came from King David. He was a descendant of David. That means he was a man, 100%. But not only that, verse 4 says he was declared to be the son of God. And so he's not just 100% man, he's also 100% God. Now, have you ever wondered, don't answer out loud, but have you ever wondered if Jesus, when he was on the earth walking around in human flesh, have you ever wondered if he knew he was the Son of God? Have you ever wondered if he even knew he was the eternal God? Okay, in case you ever wondered that, let me answer your question. Yes, <laughs> he knew. Absolutely, he was God in the flesh. I, give you, I could give you a lot of examples. I'll just give you one. 
please don't turn there. I'll just tell you, John chapter 8, okay? So in John chapter 8, Jesus is having an argument with the religious leaders of the day called the Pharisees. These are the guys who were so arrogant, they thought they could jump up and actually reach God's standard and commend themselves to God. They had no room in their hearts for the grace of God. It was all works. It was all pride. It was all legalism. And Jesus had a hard time with these guys. And so they're going back and forth. They're arguing about Abraham. Okay, if you're new to the Bible, first century, Jesus arguing with the Pharisees. A thousand years before Christ is David. 1,500 years before Christ, Moses. 2,000 years before Christ, Abraham. Okay, so 2,000 B.C., a guy named Abraham, the father of our faith, by the way, uh, walked the earth. Jesus, first century, is arguing with the Pharisees about Abraham. Jesus says this, and I quote. He says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Pharisees are like confused and highly upset and offended. And they said, you're not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Now listen to this. Jesus replied, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Sound familiar? The same name Almighty God used for himself from the burning bush to Moses in Exodus is the name that Jesus used for himself. He said, I am. You know how they responded? They picked up stones to stone him to death for blasphemy because they knew he was claiming to be God. Jesus knew he was the eternal God, and he proved it to the world. How did he do that? End of verse 4, he did it by rising from the dead. Ladies and gentlemen, whatever, what else does he have to do to prove that he's the only way? And yet, 96% of South Florida doesn't go to church anywhere. 96% of South Florida, and we're on the northern end of that, 96% right now, they're golfing, they're swimming, they're shopping, they're snoring in their bed, whatever. Totally oblivious, hearts darkened, thinking that maybe there's a God, maybe not. And yet, it's all right here. You know what we need? We need a revival in our churches, and we need a spiritual awakening in this state, in this country, to wake people up spiritually. The fact that you're sitting in your seat right now in a 1230 service in an evangelical church is an absolute miracle. You ought to thank God that you're sitting in that seat right now, listening to the truth. Absolute miracle. And so now, verse 5. It says, through him, through Christ, we have received, what's the word? That's what the letter's all about. And apostleship for obedience to the faith among how many nations? Okay, it's not just for the Jews. For his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are in Rome, I love this, beloved of God and called to be saints. In other words, hey, God loves you. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, if you're new to the Bible, in all of Paul's letters, it's always that order here in verse 7. It's always grace 
first and then peace. You'll never, ever, ever find in the New Testament peace and grace. It doesn't go in that order. You say, why? Here's why. You'll never experience the peace of God until you've encountered the grace of God through Christ. People are like, I'm searching for inner peace. Let me get my crystals or whatever. And they'll never find it, folks. Satan may give you a false peace, but you'll never have the true peace of God until you've encountered the incredible grace of God. It's all through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he has some introductory remarks. He says in verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So this was a church on fire. He says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. And so, by the way, <laughs> Paul finally did get to Rome. And I'll let you read, it, read about it on your own as you read the second half of Acts. But it wasn't the way that he thought. He ended up going to Rome in chains. And so sometimes be, be careful what you pray for. Because God may answer your prayer and it may not be the way that you thought it would happen. Verse 11, he says, For I long to see you, that I may impart, this is important, I may impart to you some, please underline, spiritual gift, so that you may be established. I love that. That's one of the things God has burdened my heart is that we, our church, the people in our church would be established, not tossed to and fro with any wind of doctrine that comes on Google or TV or the radio. You'd be established, verse 12, that is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. So Paul says, hey, believers in Rome, I want to see you. And the reason I want to see you is because I want to impart a spiritual gift uh, to you. And by the way, Paul had lots of spiritual gifts. He was graced with the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, faith, teaching, exhortation, prophecy. And that's probably just scratching the surface, okay? And so he says, I want to spend time with you so I can impart a spiritual gift to you. But it doesn't end there. He says in verse 12, that is that I may be encouraged together with you by the, what kind of faith? Mutual faith, both of you and me. Okay, so that leads you to your next point. Very important. We must spend time together in order to encourage one another. Do you see what Paul's saying here? I want to spend time with you, Romans, so that I can encourage you and you can encourage me. So I can share a spiritual gift with you and so you can share a spiritual gift with me. So I can build you up and so you can build me up. Okay, that only happens as we spend time together. And what's sad is that there's so many lone rangers in the church. And by the way, that's why there's so many discouraged believers in the church. Here's why. Because God doesn't want us to live isolated lives. He wants us to live in community. He wants all the, all the one another's in the New Testament. I mean, how many are there, right? Over and over and over again. That can only happen not in a row. The row's important. Sunday's important. 
hearing the instruction from the word of God and worshiping the Lord, that's important. But what is just as important is not just the row, it's the circle. Why? Because it's in the circle that you share your spiritual gift with others and they share their spiritual gifts with you. That you encourage others and they encourage you. Last night, my wife and I went to um, an elder's dinner. And, and Saturday, I'm so busy. I'm just busy, 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 getting ready for Sunday. And yet, uh, we went. And I'm so glad we did. Because we got there and we had dinner and we encouraged one another. We built each other up. We prayed for one another. We prayed for all of you. And we walked out of that house last night full of joy. Why? Because for a couple hours, we were in a circle. Now, some of you are thinking about not joining a life group this semester. And you're thinking, I'm just too busy. I'm so tired. Life is so hard. Sounds like you need encouragement. So cut other things out of your life, but don't cut life group out of your life. Listen, it's so hard, as Brian said a little while ago, it's so hard to, to just get in. But if you'll just get in, man, by the time the two hours is over, you'll be so glad because you've made friends because you've shared your spiritual gift and they've shared their spiritual gift. Does that make sense to you guys? Thank you. That was, by the way, the best response all day. You know what that tells me? Third service is getting the vision of this church. I love it. Look at verse 13. He says, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. He says in verse 14, I'm a debtor. In other words, I'm obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both the wise and unwise. Obligated to, to do what, Paul? He says, so, verse 15, so as much as is in me, I am ready to, here it is, preach the gospel. He was obligated to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also, and then this million-dollar classic verse, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul says, man, I just want to get there to Rome and I want to preach the gospel. I don't care if you're a Greek or you're a barbarian. I don't care if you're sophisticated or unsophisticated, cultured or uncultured, wise or unwise, Jew or Gentile. I don't care. I just want to share this message with you. Roman citizen, Roman slave, God doesn't see any of that. He doesn't care who you are, where you come from, what you sound like, what you smell like, what color your skin is, how much money you got in the bank. God doesn't care. God loves everybody and doesn't want anybody to perish. So Paul says, I got to share. I got to share this, and I'm not ashamed of it. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then another classic verse, verse 17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In other words, from start to finish. As it is written, the just shall live by works. Is that what it says? Let's try it again. The just shall live by faith. That leads you to your next point. Check it out. It's not our righteousness that's been revealed. It's God's righteousness that's been revealed. Now, 
I got to explain this, but you got to stick with me here, okay? Because this, this, this verse right here was life-changing to a lot of people. So please hear the explanation of verse 17. It's not our righteousness that's been revealed. It's God's righteousness that has been revealed. Big difference. Martin Luther was a Catholic monk who lived during the 16th century. And like so many other of his contemporaries, Martin Luther believed that he had to live a devout life in order to go to heaven when he died. Martin Luther believed that, man, like so many others, that, that he had to, you know, be so religious and so devout and so strict and, and, and keep all these rules and do all these good works, right? And so like John Wesley in his early years, in John Wesley, Martin Luther set about to save his own soul. Okay, I hope right now you're thinking that's a, that's a problem. If you're thinking that, you're right. You're right on track, okay? Plus, Martin Luther had a bad view of God. In his early years as a Catholic monk, he viewed God as a strict tyrant who was never satisfied no matter how hard his subjects tried to please him. And so matter, no matter how many good deeds Martin Luther did, he always felt like a failure. He always felt defeated. And over time, he actually grew to hate God because he felt like he could never measure up. And then he read this verse, Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And everything changed. Okay, look at it again very carefully. It says, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, when Martin Luther read that, initially, he misinterpreted it, and it kept him in darkness for a while, because he viewed the righteousness of God like this. God is a righteous God, right? And so what he's doing in righteousness is he's punishing sinners who can't jump up to the bar, who can't measure up to the standard. He's a strict tyrant. He's judging us. I can never get high enough. I feel defeated. I feel so alone. I hate God, is where Luther got in his own life. But then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit came. How many, how many of you guys are glad the Holy Spirit comes, right? The Holy Spirit came drawing, wooing. And the Holy Spirit came and shed light on this verse. And all of a sudden, Martin Luther realized, and this could be the most important statement I make all morning or all afternoon, so, so please listen. He realized the righteousness of God is not the righteousness that condemns sinners, not in this context. It is the righteousness that is given to sinners who put their faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's not the righteousness of God who condemns sinners. What's wrong with you, girl? Why can't you jump high enough? Just try harder. That's not it at all. It's the righteousness of God that's given to sinners that lifts us up to a place we could never reach on our own through faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. Now, when that light bulb went on in Martin Luther's heart, I'll let him tell the story he says, and I quote, although an impeccable monk, I did not love a righteous and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. 
But then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through what? Grace, Grace and sheer mercy. God justifies. That means to declare righteous. God declares righteous us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn, to have gone through open doors into paradise. Martin Luther, born again. Why? He finally understood, I can't jump high enough. I'm helpless, I'm hopeless without Jesus. Jesus, my only hope is you. My only hope is your blood. I'm going to start trying. Stop trying. I'm going to start trusting. And he was changed. As the worship team comes, the question is, have you been changed by this radical message of grace? One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.